Esther chapter 4, I want to invite you to stand as we read, and, and we're not going to read the, the whole book this morning, but I, or the whole chapter this morning, but I want to read into your hearing Esther chapter 4, just two verses, verses 13 and 14. Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. It says, Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Here it is. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And this morning, I want to preach from the idea of God's providence in defining moments. God's providence in defining moments. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word, I pray that when we are done, God, that we will have a grander vision for who you are and your work in our lives. Lord, I pray that you will give me physical and spiritual strength as I seek to preach your word to your people, for we are ready for you to move. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> God's providence in defining moments. Back around 2010, there was a, a man named Josh Farron. Josh Farron and his family, he had a wife and, and two boys. Uh, they bought a house in Utah. Now, they hadn't moved into the house yet, but they had closed on it already, so the house belonged to them. They bought this house from, from uh, the, the Bangerter family. <clears throat> now, the previous owner, Arnold Bangerter, was a biologist from the Utah Fish and Wildlife Department. He was a father of six children, and in 2005, his wife passed away. And the reason that the house was now for sale in 2010 was because Arnold had actually just passed away as well. And so his children, rather than keeping the house, decided to sell the house as it was. So they went through and collected some of the knickknacks and the things that had sentimental value or that mattered to the family. But rather than clean out the house, they were just going to sell it with what was there. The clothes were in the closet, couches were there, bed was there, and let the new owners decide what they wanted to keep, what they didn't want to keep. Well, Josh, having closed on his house, he was actually out sick one day from work. So the wife was gone, the kids were gone, and he decided, I want to go walk through this house just by myself, just take a more detailed look, see what we purchased. He was excited about his new house, and so he went to walk through it by himself. And he walked through the rooms that he had seen on the tour. He looked through the kitchen, but he, he started to do a little bit more of a detailed search, right? You, you don't want to go through the dead man's clothes, uh, when you're on the tour with the realtor. So he just started looking through some things. I would imagine trying to decide what he wanted to keep or, or what they were going to get rid of. And so he, he walked through, seeing the things that a man late in his years had kept and things that he had now left behind. But as Josh was preparing to leave, still very excited about his new house, he walked through the garage on the way out. And it was there that he noticed something that he hadn't noticed on the tour or any other time that he'd walked through. He noticed in the garage that there was hanging out of a ceiling tile a piece of carpet. 
And so, being curious, he grabbed a ladder that was there in the garage, he tugged on the carpet, ended up pulling back a ceiling panel, and found that there was an attic in the house that he previously didn't know about. From the best I got from reading the story, I don't even think the realtors knew about the attic that was there above the garage. And so, obviously, he's interested. There's this room that nobody told us about that that is here in this house. And so, he climbed into the attic, and one of the first things he saw caught his attention. He saw eight World War II ammunition boxes lined up. Now, I feel like Josh is a lot like me, because the first thing I'd want to do is go look and see what's in these boxes. So like, the, like a curious person, like I would probably be, he pried open the boxes, somewhat unsure of what he, what he would find, not sure if he'd find actual ammunition, not sure if he'd find family photos or little knickknacks that, that this man had collected, but what he saw blew his mind in, in these eight ammunition cases was rolls of money. And he started counting, and he kept counting, and he kept counting. And when he had finished, he realized that he had found in these ammunition boxes $45,000. Now, like a good husband, he immediately called his wife. Called her thinking through all the ways that they could spend this money. I mean, this would be great seed money for an investment in their kid's future. This could make some repairs on the house. This could help pay off the house that they had just bought. But as he told his wife, she immediately threw a wrench in his plans. Because she said, call the children of the man who previously owned the house and give them the money. Farron didn't argue because the moment that she said that, he recounted this. He said, I immediately knew that she was right. As much as I wanted to keep it, I couldn't keep it. It just wasn't right. That's what he said. <clears throat> but what's interesting is not everyone agreed with him. So reached out to the realtor, and the realtor said, it's your house. Legally, you bought everything that's in it. That money is yours. His friends obviously were like, keep the money. You bought the house. Everything in it is legally yours. But for Josh, it just didn't sit well for him to keep this money. He believed that the ethical thing, the moral thing, was to give the money back to the family. Josh said when he was asked about it, I imagine this guy for years and years collecting money and putting it away. I understand that need to think for the future and to take care of your loved ones. I, I can understand him as a dad. And see, Josh, he understood that this, this was a defining moment in his life. He could either go against his conscience and keep the money, which he had the legal right to do, or he could do what he believed to be the morally right thing to do and give the money back to this family. And so what Josh did is Josh ended up calling the family, and he gave the money to the kids of Mr. Arnold. But as I read through Josh's story, see, this isn't a story of, oh, they were so thrilled they gave it back to him. No, they kept the money. But as I read through the story, there was something that Josh said that stood out to me. You see, Josh said that as he made his decision, he wasn't ultimately thinking about what was legal. He wasn't really thinking about what was moral or ethical. He said that what drove him ultimately to make this decision was his children. He was thinking about their future as well. Now, we just mentioned, well, a great way to think about your kid's future is to put $45,000 aside to maybe pay for some college, pay for a wedding. Uh, some of you who have young kids, I don't know if you know this, weddings are expensive. Um, but he was thinking about his children. 
But this is what he said when he was pressed about that. He said this, quote, there's a big world out there. And I try to teach them, talking about his children, his two boys, I try to teach them to be good young men. And he said, sometimes I come short of that. They'll likely forget all the lectures I gave them. But I think they'll remember this one. And again, what Josh understood is that there are defining moments in our lives, and those moments have the potential to leave a legacy. Now, for us as Christians, this truth goes far beyond simply finding some money. Although I'd be willing to bet, as I told that story, some of you are like, I wish I would find $45,000. Me too. But for us as Christians, there are moments in our life when our faithfulness will be examined, when our faith will be put to the test. But in every one of those moments, our confidence is in the fact that there is a sovereign God and his providence is at work. There are defining moments that occur and they occur simply because God is at work. We don't always know when we will encounter these defining moments. We don't know if they will come once a week or once an hour or once a decade. But what we do know is that we will encounter defining moments in our life and in the midst of every one of those moments, there is a sovereign God who is at work. God is at work even in those defining moments in our life when we can't see what God is trying to do. He is always at work. And in Esther chapter 4, Esther finds herself in one of those God-ordained defining moments. As Mordecai put it, such a time as this, a moment where God's providence is at work, a moment where her faith will be tested, and a moment that if faithfulness occurs, it has the potential to leave a lasting legacy. Now let me, for some of you, recap where we are in the story of Esther because we've been at this for a few weeks looking at God's providence. So we, we began in chapter 1. I'm going to do this quickly. Uh, we, we began in chapter 1 and we met King Ahasuerus, otherwise known as King Xerxes. And he reigned far and wide with wealth and splendor and power. And he threw for himself a 187-day party where he got drunk. He tore it up. Man, he had a good time according to earthly standards, uh, had a great time. And at the end of this, this 187-day party, he calls his wife and says, hey, come parade your beauty in front of my guest. And the wife said, no. And obviously this bothered King Ahasuerus. So what did he do? He banished his queen Vashti from his court. He removed her crown. She was no longer queen. And he sent her out and sent a decree out telling every other husband to manage their own households well, something that he could not do. But then as we picked up in chapter two, we realized that when when King Ahasuerus sobered up, he regretted his decision. He was lonely. He remembered his queen and how good she had been to him. And yet he had made a decree and removed her from the court. And so Ahasuerus' servants have an idea. Let's go gather up the best looking virgins from all the provinces where he reigns and we'll bring them before him. And maybe, just maybe, King Ahasuerus can find himself another wife. And we talked about that was a very painful thing for those women involved. That's not a love story. It's not the way it's supposed to work. And Esther was one of those girls, a young girl who had kept her virtue and purity and by essence of that we can make the assumption that she was she was seeking to be faithful to the jewish laws and the requirements and yet here she is taken from her home to parade herself before a king to perform for him in hopes of maybe winning his favor and becoming the queen it was painful it was hard but in the midst of all of that god was working 
And Esther does win the favor of the, queen, of the king. And so she becomes queen, and, and the king loved Esther, and he cared for Esther. And as a result of Esther's position, she's able to give Mordecai, her, her cousin father, if you will, the cousin that adopted her and is acting as a father for her, a, a position in the royal court, a low position, but a position nonetheless. And in this position, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, another one of the king's officials, someone who was higher ranking than him, second only to the king. He refused to bow down when Haman walks by, and as a result, Haman is, fewer, is filled with anger and hatred, not only for Mordecai, but for all of the Jewish people like Mordecai. So Mordecai's decision not to bow down to Haman resulted in Haman making a plan that the king agreed to to kill all of the Jews in 12 months' time. And we talked about how sure you have to be in your reign when it's the first month and you tell all your provinces that in the 12th month, I'm going to kill all the Jews, so just everybody get ready for that. And as you can imagine, the Jews were rightly upset. And we left off at the end of chapter 3 with the, the city of Susa, the fortress of Susa, in chaos and confusion because the Jews have found out that the king and Haman planned to kill them all. And as I mentioned, Esther, though unbeknownst to her at the start of Esther 4, is about to walk right into a defining moment in her life. And so what I want to do with the time that we have left is walk through chapter 4, and I want to offer you four truths to consider as we think through this idea that God, of God's providence in defining moments. Now, I have a disclaimer to make because it's important to mention, especially in our current church climate. Some of you will know what I'm talking about. Some of you won't. That's okay if you don't. Uh, these are not my points, okay? I am borrowing them from someone. So at the beginning of my doctoral studies, one of my professors, Dr. Tate Cockrell, as an encouragement to us, just, just walked through Esther 4 and in about five minutes gave us these four points. And I thought that they were great points. So, so the, the in-between the points, I'm filling in all those details, but I'm taking his four points uh, because I think it speaks to the nature of God's providence in defining moments. Everybody clear on that? They're not my points, okay? All right. Here's the first truth that I want you to see as we consider God's providence in defining moments. Defining moments often follow great pain. Defining moments often follow great pain. Look back, look back if you will, at, at verses 1 through 4. It says, when, when Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king, king's gate since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth, or I'm sorry, anyone wearing, yes, sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was a there was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict reached. They they fasted, wept, and lamented. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. And we got to remember what's going on here. 
So Mordecai, as well as everyone else in the kingdom, has just learned of the decree that in the 12th month, the Jews are to be killed. And as you can imagine, Mordecai being a Jew, this creates within him this sense of uncertainty and fear and pain and struggle. It's fair to say that Mordecai is in the middle of a hard situation. I mean, we see that there in in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. And what Mordecai is doing with those actions, it's not unfamiliar. The act of tearing your clothes and putting on sackcloth and ashes was a means of of displaying great sorrow and deep mourning. It's not unfamiliar to them. Now, it's unfamiliar to us. Because we tend to live in a culture where for whatever reason we think that we have to keep our sorrow and our mourning on the inside, that we have to put on this face that everything's okay, that nothing's going, nothing's going wrong, and it's somewhat dishonest because we all experience sorrow. We all experience great mourning, and, and so the tradition of the time, and it was a beautiful tradition because suffering, as we've said, was never meant to be done in isolation. It was a way of telling the community something's wrong right now. Something is wrong with life. We see this going back to Jacob. Do you remember when his sons tried to convince him that Joseph had been killed by animals? When in fact they sold him into slavery? And in Genesis 37 verse 34 it says, Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth around his waist, and and mourned for his son many days. David, King David, after finding out that Saul and Jonathan were dead, 2 Samuel 1, verses 11 through 12, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and all the men with him did the same. They mourned, they wept, they fasted until the evening for those who died by the sword, for Saul, his son Jonathan, the Lord's people, and the house of Israel. Daniel, after understanding, after God gave him understanding of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he, he began to understand the coming desolation of Jerusalem that was to take place, Daniel 9, verse 3, so I turned my attention to the Lord, the Lord God, to seek him by prayer and petitions with, with, petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. But I want you to understand, this was not just a custom only for those in Israel. <clears throat> in fact, other nations did the same thing. It was a known means of mourning. Joyce Baldwin in her commentary notes this. She says, these customs are referred to at widely separated periods in the Old Testament. And they are practiced by other nations as well. Indeed, the Persians of Xerxes' time in Susa are recorded themselves to have torn their clothes in unappeasable grief after the defeat in Salmis. Mordecai was therefore behaving in a way which was in keeping with the local practice as well as with Jewish custom in tearing his garments. And what I want you to see, the reason I share all of that history with you, is that Mordecai is in great pain and it is known among the people. But we can't forget about Esther as well. Because Mordecai is not the only one in pain. Esther, she's not had an easy go of it as well. So not only can we see Mordecai's pain leading to this defining moment, we can't forget about Esther. Now at the beginning of Esther chapter 4, she doesn't even know about the edict yet. She doesn't know what's going on in the kingdom. But it doesn't mean that she still hasn't just experienced some great pain. Remember her story. She was in exile in a foreign land. And then while in exile in a foreign land, her mother dies. And then her father dies. And and by God's grace, she has a, a godly, noble cousin named Mordecai who adopts her as his own and raises her as his own child. And then she's taken from him and forced to sleep with a pagan king in hopes of gaining his favor. That pain just doesn't go away because you're queen. She's had a painful 
life. But as we mentioned when examining Esther 2, what we're going to see more and more as the story progresses is that not an ounce of Esther's pain was, was meaningless. And we can add now that not an ounce of Mordecai's pain was meaningless as well. God was doing something. God was leading them into this defining moment. And what I want to tell you this morning is that if God is leading you into or has already led you into a painful season, then you can trust that God is leading you into a defining season. As we've already established, not an ounce of your pain is meaningless. And if that is true, that means that in every hard moment, in every painful moment, God is doing something that if we respond with faithfulness can become a defining moment for us. But again, this shouldn't surprise us. Because as we've already stated in this, in this series over and over, God is at work in the midst of our most painful seasons. And God has a track record of creating defining moments for his people and for individuals on the other side of their darkest moments. Do you remember the examples I gave of those mourning in sackcloth and ashes just a moment ago? How we talked about Jacob and David and Daniel See, that's part of God's track record, that he was doing something. He was bringing about defining moments in the midst of their greatest and darkest moments. See, God was creating a defining moment in the life of Joseph when God allowed his brothers to sell him into slavery. And then once a slave, it didn't stop because he was falsely accused of sexual assault. And so here Joseph is in prison on a trumped-up charge, and he happens to meet two of the king's officials, and these two had a dream on the same night that they didn't understand, and God allowed Joseph to interpret those dreams. A few years go by. Joseph doesn't know what God's doing. He's sitting in a jail cell, and a few years later, Pharaoh has a dream, and nobody can interpret the dream, and these two officials said, we know someone who can, and Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream and was given a title and a position and a place of prominence. And God used that position to save the lives of the very people who sold him into slavery. Ultimately saving the lives of the lineage of the promise. God was creating a defining moment in the life of David when after battling a giant and being anointed by the next king, he found himself constantly on the run and in fear as Saul sought to take his life. But in the midst of that, God was cultivating the heart of a king, a king who would value unity and despise infighting so much that he would unite the southern and the northern kingdoms of Israel, a king who was being developed to believe that there are moments in life when your back is against the wall, but in those moments, if you lean into God, God will fight for you. God was creating a defining moment in the life of Daniel when he was taken into exile but found favor with a pagan king who kept missing the mark and ended up putting Daniel in jeopardy. But Daniel, simply by being faithful in prayer, found himself in a, pill, in a pit filled with lions. But in the midst of that pain and in the midst of that uncertainty, God was doing something because when, David, or when Daniel got out of that pit with not a scratch on him, a pagan king declared, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heaven and on the earth for he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. But here's the thing, church. I don't even really think I need to go through the stories of the Bible for you to believe that God can create defining moments on the heels of some of your greatest pains. 
Because if you are here and if you have trusted in Jesus, you have experienced this. There was once a time, and you may have forgotten or you may underestimate it, but there was once a time when the pain of your sin was too much. There was a time when the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see your own wretchedness. There was a time when you came to the end of yourself and realized that you were destined for hell because of your rebellion against God. And if you are like me, there was a time when that realization really hurt. It was painful to know that I had offended the great God of the universe and deserved hell. But then somebody told me about this amazing thing called grace. That there is a God in heaven who sits high but looks low and who loves you so much that he paid for that sin that is causing you so much pain. He loved you so much that he wanted to adopt you into his family. And when you had no home, you found a home in the arms of a loving God. You may have forgot, but your very testimony is a testimony that defining moments can happen after great pain. If only time would allow this morning, church, I bet we could go around this room and hear testimony after testimony of seasons of pain that you thought was pointless, that you thought had no purpose, and somehow, some way, God created a moment in your life that changed the direction you were headed. Here's the second truth I want you to see this morning. Defining moments often involve great uncertainty. I'm sorry, one second. Defining moments often involve great uncertainty. Look at verses 8 through 11. It says, Mordecai, he also gave a copy of the written decree issued in Susa ordering their destruction. I mean, let me pause for a minute. I skipped a little bit, forgot I didn't read it. So basically, Esther finds out that Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes, that, that he's, he's mourning by the gate. And so she doesn't know what's going on, but she doesn't want him mourning, so she, she sends her, her servant. Hathak sends, sends him to go find out what's going on with Mordecai. And so they engage in a dialogue. They go back and forth a little bit as Mordecai's trying to explain why he's in sackcloth and ashes. Sweet Esther's like, I don't want you to tear your clothes. Let me give you some new clothes. And he says, I can't take those clothes. I'm mourning. But it's in this discussion through Esther's servant that Esther comes to learn what, what's just happened. And so Again, verse 8, Mordecai also gave him, that's the servant, a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. And Hathak came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law, law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the gold scepter allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. So here's what's going on. Esther, up until this point, had no idea that this edict went out. Because if you remember, what did Mordecai tell Esther about her heritage? Don't tell the king that you're a Jew. 
Don't let him know that right now because it points to the fact there was animosity against God's people. And so, so Esther hasn't told the king that she herself is a Jew. And so the king signs this edict for the destruction of all the Jews. And so Mordecai says, you need to read this edict. And she reads it and she realizes this isn't good. And so Mordecai says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go before the king. And Esther's like, well, wait a minute. There's a law that I can't just walk into the presence of the king. I mean, if you walk into the presence of the king and he doesn't want you there, it's not a get out. There's no security that hooks you by the arms and walks you out. They just kill you unless the king welcomes you by extending his golden scepter. So as you can imagine, there's a great deal of uncertainty with this request that Mordecai puts forth to Esther. But Mordecai says, listen, you you have to go talk to the king. He says, you are uniquely positioned to intercede for your people and plead for the king to revoke this command. But Esther does understand the peril she's in. And Esther goes so far as to say, listen, I haven't been requested, but the king hasn't even wanted to see me for 30 days. So clearly I'm not on his mind, or so she supposes. So Esther knows that this request to go before the king could cost her her life. And this leads Mordecai to respond with what we read at the beginning. Beginning there in verse 13, Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's power. If you are silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But know that your father's family but that you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Here's what Mordecai is ultimately saying. Yes, there is a great deal of uncertainty. If you go before the king and the king does not welcome you, it could cost you your life. But on the other hand, if you do nothing, it will surely cost you your life. He says, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. So in other words, Mordecai reminds Esther, you have three options in this defining moment. Die now, die later, or perhaps be used as an instrument by God for the deliverance of his people. Now, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, Esther hasn't read the end of her story yet. She doesn't know what's going to happen in chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. She is in the midst of great uncertainty with no idea how this is going to play out. But can I tell you this? This is why God's providence is such good news to us. Because if he is sovereign over every defining moment in your life, then what is uncertain to you is already certain to God. Esther might have already been written before the foundation of the world because that's how sure God's power is. If he is sovereign over defining moments in your life, then what is uncertain to you is already certain to God. You might not know if you're going to get that job that you've been praying for. You might not know if you're going to get the promotion you're hoping to get. You might not know when or if you will get married. You might not know when or if you will have children. You might not know what high school to go to, what college to attend. You might not know what's next in your life. But what is uncertain to you is already certain to God. And whatever the outcome, we can trust that it will be what is best for you 
and what will bring God the most glory. And maybe as you reflect back on your life, you can testify to a few of those moments. I've got one. I've got a few defining moments. Some of you have heard this story, but a defining moment in my life was when I was, I was living in South Carolina. I had gone through a pastoral residency there. I loved it. I had finally cultivated godly Christian friends, guys around my age, a little older than me. But I'm discipled by somebody other than my family, and I appreciate that discipleship family. But, but, but I was being discipled by people, and, and I loved everything about the fellowship and the place where God was having me to serve. And then God went and messed around and called me to come back to this city the city that I had left for South Carolina, the city, if I'm honest, I never wanted to come back to other than to visit my parents. Amen. But it wasn't a matter of choice. God made it abundantly clear that this is where he was leading me. And in that moment, I had two choices. It was a defining moment. Rebel or trust that what was uncertain to me and why God was leading me to this place trust that it was already certain and that it would be what would bring God the most glory. And can I tell you, it wasn't easy when I moved back. I cried a lot when I moved back. It's hard to find friends when you're in your mid-20s. It's hard to make friends at that age. But I look back now at that pain and that struggle in that moment. And I see how because of that defining moment, God gave me an amazing wife. God gave me some amazing children, and God led me here to serve with you, and there is nothing else I would want to do in the world. Yeah, there can be a lot of uncertainty for us, but God knows exactly what he's doing, and the question that we have to answer is in the midst of uncertainty. The question is not, how do we remove the uncertainty? The question is, do I trust the goodness of my sovereign God? Do I trust that he is working for my good and his glory in all things? Do I believe that he has my best interest in mind? Do I believe that he is for me and not against me? You see, often times are hard as a result of us not being able to see how they'll play out. That's why they're hardships. Because we can't see what's on the other side of it. And I don't know about you, but no matter how hard, hard I've tried, I've not been able to adequately know the future. I've tried to be a prophet. I have. I, re I really have tried. I've tried to predict outcomes of sporting events. I've tried to pre predict the outcomes of situations I've found myself. I've even messed around and tried to predict some of your situations. Not to you, because I'm not trying to get stoned as a false prophet. I say that jokingly, but in all seriousness, the reason some of our hardships are so hard is because we can't see the end. But we serve a God who, who is outside of time and who holds the beginning and the middle and the end in the palm of his hand. And no matter how much the world rages, no matter how much you struggle to be faithful, God's plans are not thwarted. See, where we rest in the midst of uncertain times is by clinging to the God who holds the future in his hand. And in essence, that's exactly what Mordecai is doing in Esther 4, verse 14. Look at what he says again. He says, if you keep silent at this time, 
relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I love Mordecai's faith. He said, here's what I do know. We're in perilous times. We got about 11 months, give or take, for God to do something. And perhaps he's put you in this position, Esther, to be that something on behalf of his people. But one thing I'm confident of, Esther, is that if you don't do it, God won't fail. That if, if you don't do it, God is still in control. Because what Mordecai is ultimately saying is, there's one thing that I know. I know that God made a promise to Abraham. And I know that there have been trials in the descendants of Abraham's life that have put their lives in jeopardy. But we are standing here as Jews because God has not failed us yet. And so Mordecai is trusting in a certain God in the midst of a very uncertain time. But here's the amazing thing. As we grow in, in, in our dependence on a certain God in the midst of an uncertain time, something amazing begins to happen. We might not know the future, but we start to grow in our intimacy with God. See, this leads to the third, tr third truth I want you to see, and it's that defining moments can lead to a greater intimacy with God. Defining moments can lead to a greater intimacy with God. Look back at verses 15 and 16. It says that Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. So, so Mordecai's made this request of her, you've got to go before the king. And Esther responds back, and this is what she says. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. Here it is. If I perish, I perish. Esther understands that maybe this, this is the reason that she is queen. Maybe this is the reason that God allowed for all this pain in her life. Maybe it was for such a time as this. But even in the midst of that belief, it drives her and the people of God to draw near to God. Because when she says, go gather all of our people that you can find and fast and pray and weep and intercede, she's, she's calling the people of God to draw near to God. See, here's the thing, church, that defining moments, especially those, especially those that come on the heels of great hardship, have a way of forcing us to depend on God. The late 19th century Austrian writer Maria von Ebner Eschenbach once wrote that pain is the great teacher of mankind. Beneath its breath, souls develop. But Paul says it better in Romans 5, verses 3 through 4. And not only that, but we also boast in our affliction. Because we know that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and proven character produces hope. Our hope in God is developed through affliction. 
I don't know if somebody told you something different, but, but, but the Bible I read tends to point me to this truth that if you want your hope to develop, you've got to endure suffering, but you have to endure it by le- leaning in and clinging closely to the God who is sovereign over our situation. Our dependence on God is deepened when we endure hardships faithfully for his glory. That's why Paul writes in Philippians 3 verses 9 and 10, my goal is to know him, that's Jesus, and the power of his resurrection. And we like that part, but then you got this, and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul is saying, listen, if if, if leaning into Jesus means leaning into suffering, then bring on the suffering because I want to be close to Jesus no matter what. Suffering has a way of driving us to our knees, does it not? But see, we have to remember that the thing about defining moments is that they're always brought about by God. And one of the main goals is that we would know him more and that we would see his hand at work and worship him. Defining moments are meant to be times in life when we grow in our intimacy with God. You know, I shared with you one of my defining moments, but there's been other ones. I've had some moments that I look back on and I see now how God was working and moving and how those moments changed the course of my life. And every one of those moments that seemed to change the course of my life were moments that were filled with hardship and pain. But I look back now and see that God was for me and not against me. That God was working for his glory. He was working for my good. And I'm thankful for those defining moments. And every one of them, has drawn me closer to God. One thing is constant in every one of those moments. Whether I was faithful or not is another thing, but one thing is constant. It's that in those moments, the Lord was drawing me into a deeper intimacy with Him. Don't get me wrong, I fought against it sometimes. Not because I was intentionally trying to fight against God. I didn't like the moment. I didn't like the pain. I didn't like the hardship. And so I pushed and I bucked. And sometimes I made those, mo- those moments harder than they needed to be. But at the end, it was God seeking to draw me, a child he loves, into a deeper fellowship with him. Even though some of those moments were painful, I look back on them with thanksgiving because in spite of the pain, in spite of the hardship and toil, I am closer to Jesus as a result. And that truth gives me hope as I walk into new seasons of struggle and and, and new seasons of pain, that in the new seasons, my God who does not change will do the same thing he did in the old seasons. And can I tell you that every one of those moments matter. This leads to the the final truth I want you to see. I'm running, running out of time. Fourth truth I want you to see is that defining moments have a lasting impact. Defining moments have a lasting impact. Now, I don't want to ruin the end of the story for you, uh, but I'm willing to bet you figured out the end of the story at this part, at this point. Uh, but God saves his people, okay? I know, spoiler, God saves his people. And while we'll talk more about that in a few weeks, I want you to flip over to chapter 9 for just a moment. And I, and I want you to look beginning there in verse 26. 
chapter 9, beginning in verse 26, it says, For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word for, because of all the instructions in, the, in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instruction and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. So God delivers and it leaves a legacy. You see, the defining moment allowed by God was ultimately, and we'll see it in the weeks to come, it was ultimately met with faithfulness by Esther. And Esther's faithfulness in the midst of a defining moment allowed by God produced a legacy. You see, the strange thing about defining moments is that defining moments don't stay moments. They tend to leave a legacy. Remember our dad at the beginning of the story? See, he understood that. That this defining moment wasn't about him, it was about the legacy that he would leave to his children. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it. Your faith in Jesus this morning is a result of Esther's legacy. Because Jesus is from that lineage. He is a Jewish carpenter. And Esther's faithfulness in the defining moment she was in had a generational impact that you and I are living, breathing testimonies to. It was, it was a result of her faithfulness and trust in a God who has proven that he is faithful. And again, we don't know when, when these defining moments will occur in our own life, but they will occur. And what we know is that defining moments often follow great pain. Defining moments can involve uncertainty, but defining moments can lead to a greater intimacy with God, and defining moments can have a lasting impact, not because we do everything right in those moments. Hear me, the defining moment isn't ultimately about you, but because our God is sovereign and His providence is at work. But I want you to notice, and we can't skip over this in, in chapter 9, those, those defining moments were meant to be talked about. Those defining moments were meant to be passed down to your children from generation to generation. I'm jumping ahead because we're going to talk about this when, when we get to our last sermon, but, but there is something to be said about the fact that my generation... And the generation before it, we've seen a 20% drop in Sunday morning worship attendance. That this just isn't, it's not that significant anymore. And I think if we're honest, for some of us, we might think that way too. That what we do in this place doesn't matter. But, but I don't put the blame on the generation that came before us. But it's an opportunity for us. You see, I think one of the problems that happen is that we stop talking about defining moments in our life to our children. We stop telling them about the seasons and the hard. Well, I don't know why we got to the place where we're supposed to hide our hardships from our children. Where we're supposed to act like everything's always good. Let your children see you suffer so they can see how great God is when you stop suffering. 
We've stopped talking about the moments when God stepped in and provided a way where there was no way, when our backs were against the wall and God showed up and somehow delivered. These defining moments are meant to be passed from generation to generation because I want my children to be able to look at my God and say, he's been good to my mom, he's been good to my dad, he will surely be good to me. And I want their children to say that my God has been, that that God has been good to my grandfather and my grandmother, to my mother and my father, surely that God will be good to me, defining moments are, are meant to leave a legacy. Maybe we need to start having some dinner time conversations about defining moments in our life. Maybe we need to start having them with one another to encourage our brothers and sisters around us. Because I'd be willing to bet that someone in this place right now is in a defining moment. And maybe they don't think that God will come through. You have a story to tell. Now, I've gone over, but I, I got to say this. I'd be half a preacher if I didn't mention this at least. Esther's defining moment is part of a bigger story. Because Esther's for such a time as this moment is a shadow of a greater for such a time as this moment. See, Paul might have said it a little differently, but he said the same thing in Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, as amazing as Esther's defining moment that brought about deliverance was, it pales in comparison. It is merely a shadow of a better for such a time as this. Because after enduring the greatest pain that could ever be experienced, both physical and spiritual, as Jesus died on that cross, in a moment of great uncertainty as, as the Son of God declared, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This defining moment provided a way for you and me to have an intimate relationship with the Father that our sin had previously prevented us from having. And this moment in time, this defining moment of Christ on the cross has, an Im has had an impact that has resounded in every generation. And I know that because we are here. You and I are a living, breathing testimony to the majesty of that defining moment because through faith and repentance we have experienced the grace that that defining moment produced. We have experienced the blessing of that defining moment. We have been changed by that defining moment. And Jesus' defining moment has come to be ours as well. And so we trust God. We trust him in our smaller moments. Just as we said when we started this series, when we cannot trace God's hand, we trust his heart. And Jesus is a declaration of God's heart. Let's pray.